Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Are you ready to connect? Dr. Carlotta Rinke, welcome to the Groves Connection. Well, thank you. I remember uh, meeting you for the first time, gosh, must have been five, six years ago now. And I just, uh, I really have enjoyed your mentorship in, in, the, in the payer industry, your ability to, uh, to uh, manipulate and, and, and read data and uh, glean the message that it's trying to tell us. It's just been fabulous working with you. And I was so uh, disappointed uh, when you, uh, not to begrudge your retirement, but but when you sort of retired, you didn't really retire. We'll get to that later. <laughs> but the first thing I'd like to to ask you is, as you know, I'm going to ask about your background. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to elementary school? What was your early life like? Well, I grew up in, a, I, I'm a Midwestern girl. <laughs> I should say women at this, women at this point. Yeah. But I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, on the uh, southwest west side of the city. And um, actually, I my mother was a Rosie the Riveter, and my father, really? they married after World War II. My father spent um, five years uh, in the military during World War II and was in the Philippines. And so their um, engagement was delayed, with their engagement, their marriage was delayed four or five years. So it was kind of tough. So I had an older mother. And during that time, she worked in small arms plants. She worked for McDougal, um, um, McDonnell Douglas uh, aircraft um, doing um, parts and quality engineering. Yeah. So she became a woman who made money and felt the power of being financially independent, being a single woman. Yeah. And her parents owned a bar and a tavern. She was a first-generation Croatian immigrant. So I, I put this into context about where and how I grew up, because I've been doing some memoir writing, actually, about this. And so I grew up in this uh, southwest part of St. Louis. My father came back from the war, and he was a brewer for Anheuser-Busch, which was a, a skilled trade. He, I came uh-huh. from a working-class background, and we moved into a neighborhood where there were um, the starter homes for a lot of business people. And anyway, it was an exposure to uh, to um, uh, an aspiring middle-class educationally motivated, et cetera. So I grew up in the Southwest County and I, and, and I went to a Catholic high school, a Catholic mm. elementary school with the Sisters of Charity with these big hats. And so <laughs> they were actually latent um, feminists. And so anyhow, I grew up um, in that setting and uh, went to a public high school and really um, twisted my parents' arm not to go to a Catholic high school, but was in that <laughs> public high school. And so that was sort of my entree into... Uh, into going toward medicine, going pre med. But anyway, so th- that's that's kind of my my background in a nutshell. But I want to say that I was really driven that my um, my mother was really regretted ever not working anymore and being so financially disenfranchised. So um, you know this really imprinted on me. And and she had some her sisters had some hard times. Um, and uh, you know you needed to be able to make your own living, which was a new message for women of my generation. Yeah, oh, you're supposed yeah. to go to college, you get married, but that wasn't the messaging I received at all. Yeah, so she was she instilled in you the the value of education. Uh, it sounds like yes, and, oh yes, and, yes, and self sufficiency and independence, uh-huh. and that uh, she was one of the earliest pioneers in that uh, area. It sounds like in this country, she, she was, she was, you know. 
And I remember she, she used to really love Barbara Walters, you know, the woman journalist. She was one of the premier women journalists, you know. Yes, uh, yes. Uh -huh. which, you know, holding up female um, models who were, um, you know, epitomized, you know, the working independent woman. Now, Dad, did you know when you were in high school that you wanted to go in, that you wanted to be a doctor? Or, or was it... Uh, uh, do you have other some other kind of science pursuit in mind at that time? Well, you know, um, it was the whole STEM, you know, science, uh, engineering, um, medicine um, that really impacted me. Carlotta, you've got do not go to your don't do not go to college and get an arts and science degree. You need to get you know some you know strong uh, mathematical and science background. So, but actually, then I expressed interest in medicine. Boy, that sounds really interesting. You know, um, my friend, best friend, her father was a retired ophthalmologist. Gotcha, you yeah. know, I thought, yeah, maybe that's what I want to do. But my mother just took that and ran. So I want to say that my first year in college, um, you know, I I did not want to be in calculus, mm. chemistry. I took like these, you know, really heavy science hours. And I thought, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be in a pre-med competitive environment. So where are you in college now? Oh, okay. So my first year, I actually went to the University of Colorado. Oh. Yeah, just for the first year. Um, and it was out-of-state tuition. My parents weren't really behind it. Mm -hmm. And I really got lost. This was, you know, during the student revolts. This was in 1971. Oh, my goodness, um, yes. Yeah. So I came back home, and then I went to St. Louis University in St. Louis. And um, and then my mother, you know, um, anyhow, she, you know, if you're not going to be a doctor, what else are you going to do with your college education, you know? <laughs> yeah. But then I found a passion. You know, I found a love for, you know, um, the sciences. I found a, a track. You know, I found my way, basically. Yeah, now, now, tell us a little bit more about uh, uh, getting lost in, in Colorado. I mean... I, so 1971, there was a that was the tail end of the 60s, 69, the summer of love had just happened. Um, I can't remember when Kent State was, but it was a pretty tumultuous time for college. Yeah, the, the Vietnam War was really big. And this was the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, which yes. was kind of a volatile group. But 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 um, in the university, you know, there was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of, you know, yeah. Protests. And def definite protests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, they, we um, the day of the midterms, we um, of the second semester, there was a student strike. And nobody had classes, and the exams were canceled. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, younger uh, people don't realize how tumultuous those times were. They have this picture of the the late '60s and early '70s that includes maybe uh, Woodstock, and 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 uh, it's they right. don't think about how uh, tumultuous the times were. But it was a a time of a, a great upheaval. It really was, and. I, I, I don't want to compare it to uh, the, the challenges that we have today because it was different, but it was a very tumultuous time. And I think some people forget that. So you you came back home basically because you were uh, uh, in this setting where uh, it didn't, you know, you weren't able to, to, to focus on your studies and you weren't, you know, they were canceling classes and, uh, and you came back home and initially did you say this science is not for me to your mom? And Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to say too, that I really got lost in the exposure of people very different from my background. Uh, people from very, yes. uh, from a lot of wealth. There were West Coasters. There were beautiful yes. California women. One of the individuals that I met in my freshman year, uh, her name was Kurtley Parker. And, uh, her parents were engineers. She was from Colorado. And I remember her showing me, um, uh, she had an album of Joni Mitchell. And Joni Mitchell's oh, yes. first album, Clouds, it was a self-portrait. And I looked at that, and it was my first exposure to like cultural feminism. She went on yeah. to become a physician. We never continued, but I remember some influential people having me think sort of differently from my, my very conservative Midwestern Southwest yes, yes. County background, you know, and um, after you came back home, uh, did uh -huh. college go well for you? Did you enjoy it? Were you on campus? It, it and... did. Yeah, I, I was on campus. Yeah, and I, I had an apartment. It, you know, yeah, I yeah. um, it was, it was kind of a small crew of uh, pre med students. Um, you know, gotcha. very got together, very very friendly, very you know, sharing um, studies, that kind of thing. Did you have other interests uh, uh, 
outside of uh, the science track you were on? Were there other things that you studied or wanted to study that you can get a chance to? Or? I wanted to major in philosophy, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. There was a kibosh on that, right? <laughs> I could, I could. So I, I did some secret um, um, poetry writing oh. today. I actually, I have stashes of journaling from. Yeah, from you know the 1970s to the 80s, and I, I, I I'm sure that those are 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 somewhat personal, but I'd love to see those. I mean, what a time to be yeah uh, uh-huh. writing down experiences. Did, did did you journal when you were in Colorado? Um, no, I didn't at that time. Uh, okay, all right, okay. <laughs> There's yeah, too much yeah. going on. My father saved all my letters, um, but they um were censored. <laughs> to my, oh my yes, dad. yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And so let's go to. Uh, to college now, and so you were on. You you were on. Uh, I'm going to be a doctor track uh, with mom's yeah. uh, attention and help. And and so, how did you decide where to, where you were going to medical school, and where did you wind up? Well, I wound up at St. Louis University, um, and um, I applied to a couple of other Midwestern schools, but opted for um, for St. Louis due to the people that I knew. Um, and uh, we kind of a cohort who got in together. And and, and uh, what was your experience like in medical school as a woman in that era? Was it yeah. very different than it is today? Of course, you know. And I want to say that um, it was Title IX of the um, of the uh, Civil Rights Act. Mm. You know, they they applied that to requiring colleges to increase the number of women athletes, but it also applied to any schools that were receiving federal funding. Yes. At that time, I think there were like 10% of the class were women. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a very small amount and, um, you know, they were from uh, all over. There was a small group of us uh, from St. Louis, but, you know, the, um, but I want to say it was really, really challenging. You know, it was sort yeah, of like yeah. finding this dual role. I mean, the, uh, the, the drug, the hippie culture was really not about misogynistic, but it was you know definitely women were kind of downplayed. Yeah, you had to you had to you had to compete like a man essentially yeah, it, yeah. if you wanted to get anywhere. Exactly. It, in my head, I always felt like I was the artist. Oh, <laughs> that was my yeah, fantasy. Yeah, done. I was thinking, you know, um, you know, this is not my whole life, but I yeah. made it my whole life. You know, and I did well with it. I wasn't an AOA, you know, student. You know, right, but right. I was, you know, I was in the middle, of the average, and. Um, yeah, but I found a passion on the clinical, on the third year when you started doing your clinical rotations. Yeah. Then I really, because you're interacting with people closely, with patients, with each other, you know, it's more yeah. of a, a community, you know, residence rounds, that kind of thing. Uh, my minor uh, in college, although they didn't uh, assign minors, you know, we, we didn't have that option, but my minor, essentially what I took the uh, a bunch of courses in, uh, first of all, I enjoyed history. I loved philosophy, but my minor was in drama. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. So, and and it was the clinical stuff that drew me as well. I I pushed through all of the the science part of it, but it was the relationships that really uh, sold me on 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 medicine, on being a doctor. And so, I, I find that interesting that you have that that sort of artist's heart, if you will, and and uh, that it wasn't until you got to relationship that it made sense to you that this could be a passion. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. 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 I, I think that is actually something that we need to look for in physicians. I think we got away from that a little bit in, in terms of the the interpersonal skills that are required to, to develop trust and a, a healing relationship, if you will. I don't think we put enough emphasis on that today. And certainly, you know, in, in the time that you were training, time that I was training uh, after that, uh, shortly after that, was uh, uh, it was not uh, emphasized at all. The only caveat there is I do remember, and I went to the Medical College of Georgia in state, and we had an anatomy professor who was just very, very clear about the reverence that we ought to show these folks who had donated their bodies, and he he spent a week preparing us for uh, the lab. And, and I thought that was really interesting. And I, I've i talked to my colleagues and many of them had, did not have that experience or did not have that idiosyncrasy in their profession. Actually, 
started writing this story maybe in 2007, but I, I have the short story, which is my experience. It's called the anatomy class. Oh, yeah. It was like day four that we were introduced to anatomy and this body. And, and so the story, I'll have to share it with you. I'm just kind of yes, editing up it. I, I have multiple versions, but it was like, I just felt like I was invading a body. I had no psychological preparation. The one of my one of my um, dissecting partners had taken anatomy as an undergraduate, so he yes. dove right in there, and it was like, it's 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 pretty profound. Uh, the, the impact uh, invading somebody else's body. Yeah, you know, day yeah. three of medical school, it was like what? Uh, teaching you how to swim by throwing you in the deep end. Yeah, <laughs> so, right, in a, right. In a yeah. sense. How did you settle on uh, a specialty? What was that process like for you? Well, you know, again, it was the socialization. It was the internal medicine re- rotation um, with the, they call this the fleas. What did they call the surgeons? I yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. but anyway, you know, we would we'd go around thinking and analyzing and differential diagnosis and then yeah. talk to the patients and then talk to each other. So it was really kind of a community learning setting that yeah. really, um, you know, surgery, it was like, you know, you know <laughs> the surgery yeah. retraining thing, you know, they're tough and they're, they're not. Yeah. There was almost like a militaristic kind of an approach to, to surgery. Yes. And that, 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 uh, that, dichotomy still exists to some extent today. I mean, we all have our notions about, you know, what uh, th- th- there are personality types that are typically drawn to surgery versus internal medicine. And, right. and where did you do your uh, internship and residency then? It's the Medical College of Virginia, which is now VCU. Great school, and, great tradition there too. Yeah. 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 I, Harold Fallon was our um, was the um, the chair of the Department of Winston. Oh, yeah. And he yeah. he kind of keyed me into the American College of Physicians, you know, um, he was really active in that organization. Anyway, and kind of, you know, gave a more academic approach. I don't know, kind of instilled in me an academic approach of, 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 of our careers and how we think about medicine. So, you know, I had the intellectual piece to it, and then the personal piece was where I was really engaged. But it was a very competitive residency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have to tell you, there were like 100 internal medicine residents, um, and, uh, I think uh, out of them, there were maybe like 10 women, three or four of them got asked to leave within the first half of the year. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was just, it was grueling, you know. That's pretty brutal, yeah. You know, again, I had a hard time, a struggle, because it was every other night, it was every third night, and then on the units every other night, and being sleep deprived. Yeah. And it was a very it was a very competitive residency program. And so the community was in there and the women weren't. Yeah, that was a that was a time before uh regulations around uh interns and residents sleep requirements and yeah. Right. Well, right. I, I'm fascinated when I think back on that and I'm not even sure how I did it because I, I remember the every third night and then on uh uh, uh Three of those nights in a month, I would moonlight as well. Oh my and so gosh! That it, you know, yeah, yeah. And so I, I remember going for forty-eight hours at a time without sleep. Now, sometimes I'd catch some sleep here and there, but it was—I I called it the rule of thirds. A third of the time, you'll get some sleep. A third of the time, you'll be interrupted all night, and a third of the time, you're not going to bed. <laughs> you know, that was kind of how the the routine right. went. Right. Was there value in that, or was it excessive, or a little bit of both? I think I think I think it's important to maybe have that experience for a certain period of time, maybe three months out of your you know your internship. Um, right. I, I I think it's helpful because the intensity of that experience. But I I think it, I think it really went overboard. Yeah. yeah. Two observations. One of them is that you know how you hear these days that um, that black folk are really worried about being experimented on by the, you know, by the, the white, you know, yes, phys- yeah. physician community. You know, our, the residents ran the North Hospital in Richmond, Virginia, which was the black hospital. Now, it really was the public aid, no insurance hospital, but there right. were virtually black patients and yep, we ran yep. the gamut. We had, you know, um, um, a very, you know, some, re- some, um, uh, you know, um, professor, some attending oversight, but we really made a lot of the decisions. And so right. the idea was that, you know, we created like independence, judgment, et cetera. But the North, right. the West Hospital, which was a tall hospital, the top, the pet, the pet house being the VIP floor, those were the people with money, you know, the FFEs, yes. the first families of Virginia. So, I mean, 
it, it, I, you know, I, I, you know, thought about this lately, you know, and it was, I mean, it's terrible, you know. I understand how these people feel treated by the by the uh, the healthcare delivery system because they have been so, you know, traditionally discriminated against. And I yeah. think about these poor patients; they, they were they were for us, you know. We weren't serving them, you know. They were serving us for our clinical experience right. to learn and yeah. take out. Yeah, get your experience here is essentially what they were saying. Yeah, I, and uh, you know, it's it's interesting to me that that. That dichotomy still exists uh, to this day. There are, you know, there's the big hospital on the hill where most of the time the attending is attending uh, to the patient and making most of the decisions. And I remember at uh, 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 at Parkland, uh, which oh, was the public oh. hospital in Dallas. Yes, yes. It was at, at the very first day of uh, my residency. I'd been through internship where I, you know, had had residents. But the very first day, I was put in charge of the emergency room at Parkland Hospital. And it was an era when uh, if you called the attending for any reason, that was a sign of weakness. Uh, you know, and, and it was- I it remember was that. <laughs> terrifying. Uh, but, but at the same time, you're right. I, you know, when I got done with training, I was unafraid of challenges, I guess I would say, because I had uh, I had been through a lot of that. I, I'm with you, though. I think it's possible to, uh, you know, on, on one point, to get the experience without the brutality. Uh, and uh, the second point on the dichotomy, I think we still need to work on that. And I, you know, it, it, at Parkland, we did see it wasn't exclusively uh, divided by race, it was essentially income. Uh, and, you know, now in, in Virginia, you probably had a, a larger black population, but in, at Parkland, uh, there there were, uh, you know, Hispanic populations. There were uh, underserved white populations and black, and they all wound up at Parkland again, the public hospital where, uh, gosh, uh, I, there was a, a a saying that they had about. Uh, uh, not being sick in uh, uh, July, was it? I can't remember when we matriculated. I think it was in July, July or something. Yeah, July 1st. Don't yeah. get sick in July because none of the doctors know what they're doing yet. <laughs> um, and it's scary to think about that. You know, it really yeah. is. Yeah. Um, you went on, I happen to know that you went on and studied geriatrics. When did that happen? So actually, I grandfathered into it. You know, I did a lot. I did a, I didn't have to study it because I did it. Yeah. So I, I found out that the um, the nursing home patients um, were, uh, yeah, the patients who were you know, in assisted living who were chronically ill were really the most challenging if you're going to be doing internal medicine yeah. because they have these yeah. multiple comorbidities. So there was an, it, I went through it was an intellectual and clinical judgment exercise yeah. to that. So I was a medical director at multiple nursing homes in addition to um, uh, running my own practice for a while. And um, in doing some moonlighting at the time in emergency room, I did a lot of healthcare in a lot of different settings. But anyway, um, I, I, I really, I kind of, I enjoyed that, believe that or not, because I had um, uh, in different parts of the Northwest um, uh, suburbs of Chicago. What was your trajectory after? What was your first job after you completed all your training? You got your shingle, and, and what, what did you do first? Well, you know, I did a, a medical journalism fellowship. At JAMA. Wow. At the Journal of the American yeah. Medical Association. Yeah. So we're, we're, I was a contributing editor there um, from 19, I, 1980 to 81. I did that. And meanwhile, one of the, one of the, um, one of the uh, contributing editors also ran a bunch of emergency rooms. And this is 1980 to 81. Yeah, yeah. And so I did some um, um, moonlighting in some of these emergency rooms. There was some of them were more like urgent care. Yeah. Learning under Terry Southgate, who did all the, uh, the JAMA artwork. She was a mentor of mine at that time. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, again, uh, the AMA, very male-run organization. And I, I worked under um, uh, Lundberg, George Lundberg, who was an editor at that time. And How, how did that color your pers perspective on, on uh, medicine? I mean, how did, how, did that change your, your view of it or how did it influence what you did later? Well, there might have been a disconnect, but I certainly sharpened my writing skills. I learned, um, you know, worked with um, statistician, 
you know, learn, really learned about what what makes a good um, a clinical study. Well, you know, the uh, the controlled randomized blind trial, yes, and yeah, then, you know, yeah. the retrospective cohorts. We had a lot of work from the CDC. So I got exposure to public health, um, to some of the academic um, institutions too. I, I was doing some um, moonlighting in an emergency room. I was interested in in, um, in critical care. I started a section actually in jail at that time of a uh, emergency room, emergency and critical care, I think, and solicited papers, uh, publications for that. That was before critical care actually was a, a specialty, right? Yeah. And, before, yeah. and just as emergency medicine was emerging as a specialty. Yeah. yeah. I, I started evolving doing that into starting up a practice. I was doing some emergency medicine, some of the hospital administrators said, can you be good? We need women primary. It was the first time being a woman was being valued. We need yeah. women primary care doctors. So I had these hospital administrators going after me, you know, helping me support a practice, which I did for a couple of years, hired a couple of doctors, um, you know, but, you know, I had no really previous experience. It was way over. Mm. I mean, it, it was like sort of an overcommitment to the manage, business of medicine. The yes. business of medicine. Yeah. 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 And, and so and, I, and you, you yeah. did that. Uh, so you, you were running the practice essentially for, for a couple of years. You were hiring the docs and- With, with, the, help, with the help of hospitals, yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. They provided the back-end services for billing and all of that stuff. That is that kind of- Partly they did, but they helped me recruit physicians. They helped me with the salary guarantees. You quit that pretty quickly. Uh, you know, what was next for you? And actually, I, was, I wouldn't say that I was also- uh, <laughs> I was also um, an attending at Loyola University in their, their medical emergency as, as well. Oh yeah. So I, I did. I did. I did a number of. You know, I was kind of ju- so that's me. You're actually. sampling everything in healthcare. It sounds yeah. like <laughs> right, right. But then I sold the practice to the. Um, so I'm kind of jumping ahead here. You know, 15 years. I sold my practice then to the hospital, where yeah. the medical director. You know, there was um, the the guy who was. He was the medical director of emergency room, but he was this Yale-branded doctor who managed these multiple sites of primary care. So there was like about five of them. Yeah, yeah. And I was the I was the site medical director for this one in the Northwest suburbs. And I, you know, and so I am, I am jumping ahead of myself, but I really, I, you know, I thought, what does this guy know, you know? And um, <laughs> so I felt like I sold my soul to the to the firm, you know. And yeah, hours, yeah. you know, you're late. You know, uh, my whole my whole life was under control. But I would round in. The, this is before hospitals, right? I'd round in the hospital in the morning and then come to the office and see patients. Bingo. And so there was a yep. lot of driving there. But I love the hospital. I have to tell you, I love oh. seeing patients in the hospital. Um, yeah. You know, working with the specialists. So this was another. I was in the hospital community and I was referring yeah. patients to the specialists, learning about what's going on. I, you know, a lot of. Um, I want to say over the doctor's lounge, over the. You know, those consultants, you know, on, uh, you know, just talking to people. There was a community in that, in that hospital, in the hospital, which I really, really loved. To this day, I think that's a fundamental underpinning of, uh, of good healthcare. Maybe that's just dating me. I don't know. But, uh, but I, I, the the practice that I uh, started in, uh, gosh, I guess after uh, it was, is around early night, 91, 92. Uh, it was a hospital like that, you know, that, that there was a community. I knew all the doctors. We had dinner parties together. Uh, we, we talked about cases. The physician's lounge was always full. Uh, and if you didn't like that, you could go to the surgeon's lounge, you know, and find <laughs> out what's going on with your patient in surgery, you know. Uh-huh. And it right. was just this, right. you know, the surgeons would invite me in, you know, uh, dress out, come in, we'll show you, you know, exactly what's going on here. You know, it uh-huh. was that kind of environment. And I really, really uh, missed that when I moved to the big city. You know, it was it's just like, wow, this is different. This is not uh, uh, exactly, uh, uh, this is not easy, you know, in, in the environment where not all the doctors know each other. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, in larger hospitals, or the nurses don't know exactly who all the doctors are. It is a very different environment. And when you were talking earlier about your uh, experience of uh, selling to the man, <laughs> I think is the way you put it. There's those uh, 70s, early 70s roots coming out. But uh, I wonder if that's not the experience of most physicians today, right? I mean, most physicians are employed today uh, by large organizations, whether it be hospitals or giant practices or even venture capital. I'd- Private equity 
wanting to make an excess return, you know, private for their, equity. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I that's the scary piece that I, I really yeah. worried about actually, you know. Yeah, and they're snapping up ED, anesthesia, dermatology, you know, places where they think they can make a buck. Yeah, optimize exactly, yeah. and wanting to deliver that back to their investors. Where where does the where do the physicians and where do the patients you know fall into that kind yeah. of scenario? And yeah, anyway. what you just said there triggered a thought. I read an interesting piece uh, that Hal Andrews, uh, who is the CEO of Trillium, which is um, uh, uh, an analytics company uh, based in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. And he wrote a whole piece about why our current iteration of value-based care won't work. And he said the, 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 the issue is pretty simple. It's, uh, yes, there are successful models out there, healthcare partners and, you know, and, and you know, others, including ChinMed, et cetera. But the benefits, meaning the cash, is accruing to the practice managers, not to the patients and not to the government. So it is a way of extracting money from the system. It's not that these models don't have value. It's that the framework in which they are set does not deliver that value to the ultimate payer, which is, you know, the patients, uh, you and me uh, as patients, you know. And, and so I thought that was a fascinating insight that I hadn't really gone there before. And, and you're kind of saying the same, uh, the same thing, that the money is not, you know, in, in the case of... Uh, uh, private equity, well, you know, if they improve care, if they improve efficiency, and that's one of the claims of private equity is we're professional managers, we know how to do this, you know, uh, and but if there's any savings, it's not going to the system, it's going into the pockets of the folks who fund it, uh, and, it and that's why it's not going to work, and that's why it hasn't worked. What I think CMS has been doing this for 15 years now, not to mention the fact that it's tied to uh, a fee for service system which may not be the primary problem uh, as we, you know, look under the hood and drill down. It's, you know, the fact that it's not going to the people who need it may be the primary problem. What's your, what do you think uh, about uh, Hal Andrews' uh, uh, thoughts on that? My, my concern is this unfeltered capitalism yeah. is, is what I call it, you know, and it's really, it's, it's gotten its roots, it's contaminated, it's toxic to medicine. Because medicine yeah. was always about the nonprofit sector. It was about, um, you know, I get there, there are downsides to it, but it was about, you know, it was like, you know, having pure science be the starting point before right. disseminating new treatments, new therapies. Um, but it's sort of like this whole, and I, I'm going to really blame uh, private equity. What they do is they do leverage buyouts. So, you know, they take on debt yeah, in order yeah. to buy companies. And if you buy practices, then they have to pay off that debt as well as, you know, pay their investors. So they, it's like the, the life cycle is like five to seven years where they, you know, drive into the ground, they, um, you know, capture excess costs, layoffs, you know, um, on a, and, and then they, um, they, they want to sell it to somebody else to sell it up. So I right, don't know right. how this is all going to play out, but um, it is worrisome because it's turning physicians, not only as employees, but, you know, as um, yeah. like as commodities, like medicine, the physicians and who provide care are the commodities. And, and what they do is they provide an infrastructure of, you know, electronic scheduling of mm -hmm. seamless. They're going to try to attract patients and there's a lot of digital technology they want to use. Right. Now, one of them, right. I have to tell you, um, the joint venture um with uh, Del Doyle in Texas, um, yes, yes, um, yes. THA, you know, we, we were working with a an oncology group down there, Texas, um, uh, blood, Texas Center for Blood and um, Texas Center for Blood and some other kind of thing, TCCBD, Texas uh, Center for Cancer and Blood Diseases. Okay, and they have been bought out by private equity, and they, but they had like. Uh, it was like end-to-end -end care, which is very appealing, right? They yeah, have yeah. massage therapists, they have psychotherapists, they have clinical social workers for depression. I mean, they have the whole thing. They're doing cancer screening. They're doing everything, but it, but it's kind of very patient-focused. So when we were talking about, you know, getting on um, on um, employers to be able to use this cancer care, which is very connected, right? It's not like yeah, yeah, you're, you're yeah. bouncing above five different doctors. They do RT, they do chemo. They do, they do everything, but we never got to talk to the doctors. Mm -hmm. You know, we were always talking to the practice managers. I went, well, let's hear the, from the doctors, but no, they, 
I, and, and my impression was that they were really busy. You know, they had their schedules of seeing patients and they couldn't deviate from that. So, you know, the, the, the days of sort of being a, a dilettante physician and being able to, you know, um, explore other career routes, I, it just seems like um, it might be oppressive to the, the, the physicians. Meanwhile, trying to groom the patients and creating more income, more revenue, you know? Yeah. I just don't know where that's going to all go, though, you know? Yeah, the notion that uh, it's the EMR alone that has created physician burnout is an oversimplification, way right. oversimplification. That's, that, for me, is symbolic of... Uh, it's the application. Unfettered capitalism may be the best way to say it. I like that. It's uh, uh, it is no longer about the mission. It's about the money. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And there ought to be a balance there. I get that. You know, the famously, I, I can't remember who said it. Maybe it was Brent James. It said, uh, uh, you know, no mission, no money which may be where we're headed, but uh, also no money, no mission. And I get it. You know, you have to you have to make enough money to keep the doors open and pay the folks that are delivering the care. Uh, but when it becomes only about the money, that's where we we run astray. Yeah. And, you know, I've been having a conversation with um, with uh, one of the help. I don't want to be too specific here, but with one of the um, hospital systems here in, in Palm Springs where I live, right? Now, Carlotta, you're retired. You can say whatever you want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to implicate yeah. my local uh, uh, resources. But um, what what I was told, and this is what really bothers me, is that um, uh, I, I think emergency departments all over are having this problem post-COVID, but the emergency departments here in town, there, there are a lot of, there, uh, there's not a lot of primaries. The primaries, they're either there's there's a shortage of primary care physicians, and yeah, they certainly, yeah. if they're young, they don't want to come to the desert amongst a bunch yeah. of retirees. With the shortage, people go into the emergency room. So the emergency room, I mean, the doctors, they're not available. I mean, this, this is a common complaint, and so the ER is like the bottom of the bear. I mean, it's the it's the where the funnel, <laughs> the bottom yeah, of the funnel, yeah. it's you the know, catch all. Yeah. yeah. And so I was saying, you know, and so actually, I had a bit bad experience there, and I wrote a series of like consulting bullets about what they could do differently because part of my my career was in quality, and we did. I worked yeah. at Berwick IHI patient flow and throughput was one of the areas that I worked in. Uh, and uh, and so I was making some comments. So I went and, uh, but one of my comments is that hospitals are really struggling. There's no margin anymore. The market, I think, you know, if you're yeah. with Beckers, the margins are dropping to negative percent. Meanwhile, you right. have ASCs, you have all this money in these other centers. And why aren't these health systems subsidizing the hospital with profits in other areas, you know? Because some yeah. health systems have had enormous profits. And actually, this, this is one of the, um, one of the um, news items that really caught my eye is that Ascension Health, I think they're getting sued by the state of Wisconsin, Ascension Health out of St. Louis, because they closed a number of uh, uh, critical access hospitals in Wisconsin because of their, um, they mm -hmm. weren't uh, revenue producing. They, they, they right, weren't right. profit loss. They were losing money. And so right. then here, though, at this J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco, I think in December, here they talk about the billions of dollars they have in their their um their, their um, venture capital fund, and so the the, the Wisconsin DA is 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 suing them because they have all this money over here, but they're they're they're, they're really um jeopardizing healthcare in this state of Wisconsin. Interesting. And all this money in venture capital, and then you have all these startups over promoting and yeah. really yeah. cherry picking <laughs> data. So this pristine way of how we look at data and. In, in clinical trials and healthcare, it, it's sort of not translated over, and all this money is going and getting lost. I, you know, I don't know. Do I sound distressed? No, 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 no. I understand. I mean, I, and I think the the you, you know you're expressing the way that an awful lot of people feel right now about healthcare, and and one of the reasons that healthcare is losing trust is is what you just described. And I'm fascinated by uh, how you wound up. On the payer side, talk, uh, uh, take us oh, through okay. that journey first, and then I have some very specific questions about your thoughts on on where we are today. But first, take us through 
the, the, the remainder of your career and yeah, and how you wound up. Well, where what you wound what up. happened is that I got so set of, sick of working for the man, being enslaved by the firm, right? That I yeah, thought, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to get an MBA and I'm going to learn about the economics here. Because, yeah. you know, yeah, I, I, I want to be on the leader side. I want to be on the decision maker side. And so um, I, I took a sabbatical and got an MBA from from Northwestern's Kellogg's program. Yes. And, um, mm. and then I thought I want to do a career shift. And so I did some consulting, you know, um, ad hoc consulting. And then I went back to the geriatrics clinic and worked there part time at the um, at the hospital, which was part of um, it, it was um, Amita Health. At that time, it was yeah. Alexian Brothers Health. And so I worked there and um, got involved in quality. The quality director said, well, hey, let's work. We got projects. So I got involved in quality and got a medical director. Yeah. And then it turned into a chief quality officer, got involved in the IHI and just loved working amongst yeah. all the different doctors, developed um, order sets, standardizing care, worked with anesthesiologists, cardiologists. You know, how do we better screen perioperative medicine? I got into that um, that area. But it was just really, um, I, I loved it. You know, I loved working yeah. with all these different doctors and these different disciplines and trying to organize handoffs, you know, air, um, looking at airs, you know, just all the quality stuff. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. then I, I got a job as a CMO in Kentucky for a couple of years. And that did last. It was Catholic Health Initiatives. It was a three or four hospital system, but there was the University of Louisville and the Jewish Hospital was the surgical training center for the University of Louisville Hospital. Yeah, no, no, and no. so I got into the critical care unit rounding with the lung transplant and the liver transplant and the heart right. transplant yeah, and I yeah, worked yeah. with the heart train. I mean, honestly, so the, the intellectual can that I, I had, yeah, and so yeah. that's kind of me, you know, um, that job ended. And so I was searching for another position. And um, I remember I got approached for working in this new area of ACOs and the payer side um, and being on yeah the accountable care organizations, right, taking right. quality to these, these clinical contracts. Right. So I didn't do any medical director. I was never UM. I hated UM. Doctor, no, that was <laughs> not who I was, you know. But the yeah, quality. Yeah. What I, I, loved- I couldn't see you in a UM role. I, I just never could picture <laughs> that. So I was curious about how, how you wound up, where you wound up. Yeah. But, but I, I want to say what I loved about quality was that, okay, so you made a mistake, so you could have done something better. How do we, how do, we do better? How do we move on as opposed yeah. to this punitive, you know, penalizing this negative way that that a lot of medicine, you know, had had really developed. Right. You, know, you made a mistake. You were wrong. We're going to, the chastisement, the shaming. Yeah, interesting. Well, you know that 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 makes so much sense to me. Now, I have been puzzled by that for six years. <laughs> so it's nice to know uh, how that happened. You know, to your point about Don Berwick, he uh, he wrote a piece. Uh, gosh, I guess the early '90s, maybe mid '90s, called uh, "The Toxicity of Pay for Performance." Are you familiar? I, with I remember that? you Did telling me about it. It's a notion that I've I've uh, I've taken to uh, his notion that. Uh, pay for performance in itself is detrimental to the culture of medicine. And it, it's antithetical to continuous quality improvement, uh, a la Deming. You know, if you believe Deming and if you believe Brent James and if you believe those things are the way to manage quality, uh, that approach, then it's antithetical to that. Uh, you know, it, it, I take it. I like to think about it a little bit more broadly, and and maybe uh, that's the source of my basic insanity. But uh, I read, uh, uh, oh gosh, Ian McGilchrist, the Master at His Emissary, uh, which is about the brain and about left and right brain function, and he talks about how uh, the master has lost control to his emissary, which is the left brain. Uh, the left brain, which is responsible for particular manipulation of the environment, and I'm way oversimplifying here, So, uh, and the right brain, which is about context and uh, uh, situational awareness and relationship and, and meaning. Uh, and the left brain has gotten way too powerful, and I think of it in that way. I mean, it was this notion that came out of the business schools, too, that uh, it doesn't matter if you have any experience in this field because you manage by numbers anyhow, right? Uh, you just set the metrics right and uh, you know send your your workers off, and as long as they hit those metrics, you're a good manager. And 
Berwick makes some really intense points in his his paper about okay, that means uh, even if you've got twenty five metrics, what do you think that? Oh. Uh, how much of being a good physician do you think that approaches those twenty five metrics? And there's going to be excess focus on those metrics. And the second thing you know immediately is those metrics are going to be massaged. You're going to hear the best story. You're not going to hear the real story. Uh, and and he just goes through point after point after point about how this ultimately is destructive to the physician-patient relationship, to physician relationships, the whole nine yards. And I believe that he's right. And and it was Ian McGilchrist that, that uh, triggered that notion that it's a bigger problem than just pay for performance. It's a bigger problem than just the EMR. It is trivializing and minimizing the value of a healing relationship of of trust between a physician and a patient. That's no longer value. That doesn't happen in 10 minutes. It doesn't happen in 15. You know, I, I remember when I first started practice, I was allowed to you know, do whatever I wanted because my practice. So I knew patients were at least 90 minutes and we'd go over often <laughs> and follow-ups were never shorter than half an hour. And those would go over not infrequently. And, and I just think, you know, this, this uh, notion of unfettered capitalism has narrowed that down and down. And we've got this, this sense somehow that we can just automate the whole thing. And we're missing the fundamental piece of being a human being and what the mission is about. That's, that's the horse I'm on right now. But anyway, oh your no, thoughts no, on I, that. I agree I mean, with you entirely. I mean, the 15 minute visit. How do you how do you establish anything? Yeah, I, I mean, one of the when I was talking to the uh, the medical director who's also on the board, um, he was oh my gosh, you would have loved this physician. I mean, he was first generation Greek. Uh, he was really uh, just kind of very caring. He spent an hour with me after um, the the letter that I sent. Yeah, Aww. but um, yeah, but he talked yeah. about this is an example. Sixty percent of their nursing staff were travelers, um, which means that they they had no connection, they had oh no interest. Wow. Yeah, and that it really yeah. caused an uproar amongst the nurses. Yeah, yeah, because they're making a lot more than the nurses who've been loyal. Exactly. And there. Talked yeah. about how you know the fifteen minute visit the. Um, the automated visit, yeah, it's hard. It's the connection between the hospitalist and the outpatient physician. I mean, the, the trust is not there. The mistakes, oh yeah, quality. Trying to trying to ensure that the patient safety. I mean, that was the big you know horse that we were riding. Yeah. you know, throughout the um, the two thousands, the early two thousands, and patient safety is like. What happened to yeah, that? Yeah, it's gone. I mean, the, yeah. the, the loss of information, the disconnection, the hospitalists, the lack of primaries, the information. Oh, it's in the medical record. Nobody looks at it because it's, oh, it's too- it's impenetrable. 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 Yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, I agree yeah. with you. I mean, trust is not- Yeah, where is the trust? The trust is in- in yeah. the community, the online community, you should find on Instagram. You know, I, well, so, I don't so know. Yeah. What are you doing now? I, I know that- and. First of all, I ought to say that you and I met through uh, the joint venture, uh, the Banneret and Joint Venture. No, it was the ACO. You it were... was the beginning of the ACO. Oh, that's right. It was an ACO at that time. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, it wasn't yet a joint venture. Uh, no. And I was always impressed with, uh, and you say you aren't good at politics. I have not met anyone who can say so sweetly, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, you challenge uh, based on data and and you appropriately challenge and you challenge the hype uh, that I sometimes get caught up in, you know, with uh, with startup companies. And uh, so I, I, that takes us to what you're doing now and how you how you got started. Oh, doing yeah. That. Yeah. So I'm, I'm working. I still I work as a mentor at um, at matter which is in the merchandise mart of chicago it's an excel it's an uh an ex, a startup in in accelerator yeah and it so it helps yeah, yeah. It, it, it's helping um startup companies um um refine their pitch and 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 sell their their product line you know ultimately to venture capitalists but also to healthcare systems like they had a healthcare they had a, a maternal uh fetal health um um challenge for Parkland as an interconnected matter. Oh, yeah. But so I, I do mentoring for some of these startups because they want to know how to pitch to payers. And um 
And so I, you know, it's kind of the same thing we did. <laughs> Robert, are you due? I don't know yeah, what basis. Yeah, exactly. yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Banner Health, you know, yeah. looking at technologies and, and seeing, you know, what would be their value to a payer, even to a provider, and, and then how do they refine the value prop? Well, what I appreciate about uh, what you do in that in that role, though, is, is you know, you, you look for real value first. You know, is this really valuable? Right. Because otherwise, I'm not interested. And any, any, any advice uh, for uh, those of us who are still, uh, you know, in the trenches? Uh... I am a medical advisor on a couple of other little companies. I act as a medical advisor on these companies that are mission focused. I want to say that, including the, the stroke. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I want to tell you too that I'm on the board of the Palm Springs Writers Guild and I'm doing writing. Yeah. Oh, cool. And I'm also on the board yes. for the Northwestern University Alumni Group where we help plan events. So, you know, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm really yeah. having a lot of fun. And I swim, but anyhow, you have outlets for for your creative yeah, side. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it, it, it's fun. But as far as um, uh, for those in the trenches, yeah, yeah, continue to grow in the areas of intellectual curiosity. Continue to grow and to learn, mm. and to continue to find solutions in what's going on. And you know, you know, as, as you become more mature in your career, you know, find. Um, political or action-oriented outlets where your voice and your thoughts can mm-hmm. be possibly incubated into policies. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. And, and uh, uh, you know, I have, uh, I have had a lot of experiences in my career, uh, but one of them is, uh, you know, occasionally I'll meet somebody that, whether they know it or not, becomes a mentor, and oh, you are one of those oh people. My. And I sincerely appreciate uh uh, the uh, the way you've uh, honed my perspective oh. on a variety of topics, and so I, I, I'm sure you didn't know that no. because I've not told you before. But I I deeply appreciate uh, your wisdom, uh, your uh, your ability to deliver hard messages uh, <laughs> softly, uh, and and uh, I'm glad that you're still uh, plugging away, uh, helping us out here. So. Uh, Carlotta, I, I can't tell you how much of a joy it's been to talk to you. I look forward to doing this again. Okay. Uh, we've got so much we didn't have time to talk about. Well, I and I got to thank you, Robert, because you've been a inspiration. You have been a mentor. You have been a leader. I mean, you're doing really great things for healthcare in your position and actually disseminating with your speaking engagements. Um, you're, you're seeding your own plants, your own ideas that... They take somebody's take another generation to grow, you know. But I'm with you. Yeah, let's get the mission back. Well, thank into- you so much. Thank you. Yeah, okay. yeah. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot, Robert. All right. Thank, thank you, you so much, okay. Carlotta. Right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Groves Connection.